Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. I was once described as the manager, the mentor, and the visionary who went to the theater with an unfocused dilettante and raised the curtain on a superstar. Hello and welcome to episode 36 in our series exploring the history of Main Man, the management rights company which was renowned in the 70s for transforming the business of rock and roll. While allowing Main Man artists to explore their creative freedom, the company pioneered promotion and marketing techniques that became synonymous with the decadence, extravagances and indulgences that are now part of rock folklore. This was indeterminate sexuality, it was outrageous, the whole factory, and we were a little bit more outlaws. So if we were anything, we were like sexual outlaws because we were out there. Main Man worked with a diverse range of clients that included Amanda Lear, Mick Ronson, John Mellencamp, Mott the Hoople, Dana Gillespie, Mick Ralphs, Iggy Pop, Lou Reed and David Bowie. And that's when we started doing the most weird kind of musical things like Chim Chimery and uh, Mars uh, from the Planet Suite. So I just didn't know what, where I was going, but I just knew I was writing and I had in my head some idea that I wanted to put some kind of musical thing together. I didn't know what it was going to be. In this episode, Main Man founder Tony DeFries recalls the very important relationship between David Bowie and Freddie Baretti, who was the designer who worked closely with David and Angela to design both the early Ziggy Stardust outfits and some of David's street clothes. In the summer of 1971, while DeFries was busy extricating David from his existing contracts in order to pursue more beneficial arrangements, David decided it was the perfect time to try and make Freddie a star in his own right and as part of a project that never really got off the ground. This is the story behind the Arnold Korn Sessions. This is an interlude in David's early career. In 1970-71, when I started working with him and when we still were tied, or he was tied, to Mercury Records... He wanted to record some songs that had already been somewhat uh, recorded or recorded in some form, but weren't yet part of any released recordings. And part of this was because we'd made a deal with Chrysalis Publishing and they wanted to hear more songs. And this meant going in and recording some new songs to give them that they could hopefully work with. David decided that he would try and do more than one thing, more than just go in and record songs. He felt he should record songs with somebody. And the person he chose to record songs with was Freddie Baretti. Now, Freddie Baretti, uh, apart from his talents as a designer, and he was very talented as a designer, he was not in any way, shape or form a singer or a performer, and hence couldn't really front a band. David decided that if he could come up with, obviously we had musicians, and the musicians were what became the Spiders, and so David decided that he would use those musicians, take some of the songs that we've been working on for both performances and 
that were going to ultimately become part of Ziggy Stardust but hadn't yet happened and record them with himself, David, singing. Now, of course, David knew, because he and I had discussed it, and I told him, you can't go and make any recordings using yourself as the vocalist that won't then be claimed by Mercury. In this period, until we resolve the Mercury situation, we can only work on recordings that we've decided to give them already, essentially then limited to Man Who Sold the World. Other recordings are going to have to be made possibly as demos for your publisher, but that presents potentially problems because if you're the vocalist, it still gives Mercury the right to say those recordings of those songs belong to them. So it's safer for you not to make or record new songs where you're the vocalist. So David decided, although this wasn't really the object of that particular exercise, to add a layer. And the layer he decided to add was to use his newfound friend, Freddie. Freddie Beretti was a 19-year-old, very, very pretty, very effeminate, very talented designer who David had met at the Sombrero. And the Sombrero was a coffee bar, restaurant, which on Thursday nights became a gay meeting place, a gay club, and had a dance floor, and was very popular. And David was a popular attendee and figure there, so was Angela. And one night, they found Freddie, took him home, and later on invited him to come and live at Haddon Hall with his girlfriend, Daniela Palmer, and become the official designer of Ziggy and Bowie performances, costumes, and regular clothes, although David's clothes were never quite regular, but they were all designed by Freddie, and it gave him a very interesting look, very unusual, very modernistic fashion as it appeared in photographs that then became quite prominent in the media these curious and different clothes became massively popular and they did help David to achieve a certain extra status otherworldly status especially the stage costumes that Freddie created not just for David but for the spiders as well so before all of that happened, this Arnold Corns experiment happened. The Arnold Corns experiment was essentially an attempt by David to fashion Freddie into a singer and a romantic icon. Not quite clear which romantic icon he was aiming for because this was before we had pansexuality and transgender and all the current possibilities of expressing your gender and so if Arnold Corns or Rudy Valentino as the alternative name for Freddie were going to be a band and the band of course was formed either of a bunch of Freddie's musician friends from Dulwich College that's how it began because 
Freddie had this bunch of friends who were musicians and were looking for material and they knew Freddie was connected to David and they asked him, can you get David to write songs for us? And Freddie asked David and David said, well, I've got some songs already and you can try these. And this is how the idea of having a, another band with another singer was born. Because Freddie had no singing capability at all, David became the singer. Unfortunately, in this instance, David's singing capability wasn't very good either. And it's worth remembering that David had spent almost a decade before I met him trying out various bands and various musical identities, all of which, with the exception of the Bowie Space Oddity single, had utterly failed. And it's interesting to see why that happened and why Arnold Corns was equally unsuccessful. It goes back to David's childlike ability of getting very interested in things as soon as they caught his attention and losing interest rapidly as soon as they lost his attention. And this meant that he never actually learned music he never learned to write or compose. He never had any kind of strict formal instruction in musical composition or structure. He literally wrote out what he wanted his music to sound like. He used to draw things for Ronson. He would literally take a piece of paper and draw what he called a chord, which started out as a line and then turned into possibly a balloon or possibly something that looked like a whale or possibly a set of emerging rays, most of it looking a bit like a child's drawing of an alien thing. And then Ronson would, without saying a word, start playing what he perceived as this chord. So in a way you had this very strange situation and I don't know that any of these doodles have survived but I saw a lot of them <laughs> they're really musical doodles it's like watching somebody create a musical form which has no relation to any kind of classical composition writing or perceived composition writing or standardised notes and bars and scales and all the things we're supposed to do, all the arpeggios and all of the bass lines and all of the melody lines, David didn't entertain those. He simply drew what he heard in his head. Now, when he explained that to most people, it went nowhere. I mean, it's very difficult for most people to visualise somebody else's musical idea without at least a framework of harmonies or chords or something that can be connected. But for Ronson, the drawing served as a model. And this is a very little known and little explored area of David's relationship with his musicians. The same thing happened in, in the way he explained what he wanted things to sound like with some other musicians, notably Mike Garson, notably 
called Buckmaster. These people also sort of got enough information from David to know what they were supposed to be playing. But in Ronson's case, it was very much an exchange of musical information that was unique for David. Nobody else had done that for him before he met Mick. So when he did realize that Ronson could do that for him, he became way more prolific at writing. And Ronson had one other very useful talent as far as David was concerned. He realized, and never expressed it, but realized that David was not a singer, was not a natural vocalist, and hadn't had any vocal training. So what Mick did to compensate for all of that, he made sure that all the arrangements that David was asking for would melodically fit with his vocal range. But this didn't happen immediately. As a result, Arnold Corns was a failed project from the get-go because the songs that were recorded for that project and the ones that were released particularly hadn't yet been recorded for Ziggy. They hadn't yet been fully worked out in rehearsals or stage performances. They were very much nascent songs. And as a result, if, for example, we'd rehearsed them and recorded the rehearsals, which we often did, and then listened back to them, that would have given Mick a chance to say, oops, I need to put that in a different chord. I need to create a different set of harmonies there. But that opportunity didn't exist. This was done as a process that happened quickly and randomly. And ultimately, as I say, like many of David's earlier efforts, failed. David was not a natural performer. It took him many, many years of working with me and then with other people but essentially, between 1970, when we started working together, and 1972, when Ziggy became a concert performance piece, and 1974, when we did Diamond Dogs, many, many hours were spent with many different people helping David become a performer. And as he got into the 80s, he became much more relaxed. He, he almost became a natural performer, but in the sense of being able to simply get up and perform without any kind of band or props or set or any kind of costume, costume changes. All these extra elements made it possible for David to appear as this in control, astonishing performer. But it wasn't until he got into his, if you like, Sinatra period, which is really sort of serious moonlight in the 1980s, that he became that performer. So it took him a very long time. And if you look, for example, at Presley doing his TV special, where he's essentially doing an unplugged He's got his band, who are quite a small band, and a lot of them are people who've been with him for a long time. And this was in the, obviously in the 60s. 
and he is so relaxed and he's so comfortable and he's so Presley and he pretty much was always that and that's the Presley I saw at Madison Square Garden and that's the Presley that people saw early on when he was performing even when he was performing with Johnny Cash in that era he was just Elvis and that's very hard if you don't if it doesn't come naturally I mean remember Elvis was 18 19 years old when he started performing he didn't have vocal training and lots of church singing but no vocal training per se taught himself to play guitar relied on a very talented group of musicians of course but still that sort of performer that Dylan performer that Joplin performer doesn't come along very often and when it does come along it's immediately noticeable and David wasn't one of those performers he had to be brought up to that and as I say it took overall something like 20 or more years to get there if you consider he started when he was 14, 15 years old. It's a long process. So here we are with David. He's out of sync with the song. He's out of sync with the harmonies that are being played. And his vocal performance is dreadful. And even people who thought that Freddie was singing, and most people didn't actually think Freddie was singing, <laughs> would have said... It's not a record that is going to have any sort of mileage. And of course it didn't. It was released on a label that pretty much disappeared within a couple of years, an obscure label, and didn't go anywhere. And it's become a sort of a curiosity. Freddie, on the other hand, was an important part of David's ongoing, and right up until the, I think, 1980s he, he was still working with David through what is often referred to as the Thin White Duke era or Plastic Soul era but certainly Diamond Dogs beyond Diamond Dogs and into that latter era where he was still working on clothes for David performing clothes and non-performing clothes and it gave Freddie a great deal of exposure as a designer and influenced a lot of other people as designers over those years and made him the subject of a documentary, um, The Man Who Sewed the World, as a pun on sold the world, obviously. But it wasn't just Freddie. There was also Kansai, Yamamoto Kansai, with his massively Japanese kabuki look. And that was a large part of Ziggy as well. It wasn't Freddie alone, it was also the Kansai influence which was very much uh, accelerated after we went to Japan and actually met with Kansai. Kansai came to New York and we managed him, or I managed him for a while. And he became a, a major design influence and all these um, high stacked boots and what became sort of the rock and roll glam uniform really started with David, Ziggy and Kansai. <laughs> so you've got a very peculiar situation because you look at a high street in England or many locations in America, but especially in the UK in the mid-70s, in 1974, 
it's full of people with astonishing haircuts, with mohawks that are two feet high, that have to be glued together to stay <laughs> intact, <laughs> with platform boots and shiny suits and all the things that David went on stage in and was pictured in, but were never really meant to be street clothes. And suddenly, I remember going back to England myself in the mid-70s and I was like, it's horrifying. I can see Ziggy Stardust everywhere, but it's a caricature of Ziggy Stardust. It's not the Ziggy we thought we were making. It's a different Ziggy. It's sort of taken a life of its own and it's created all these weird and wonderful people who are following a trend that they don't really understand, but, I mean, it, they like it. They enjoyed it. And in a way, fashion does that. Fashion picks up on things that you don't necessarily get, but they make you feel like, well, I can now strut down the street feeling like I'm somebody because my hair's two foot high. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? David had a lot to do with that. He gave people confidence to do stuff they wouldn't do otherwise. We gave him the confidence to do stuff he never would have done on his own. David was essentially shy, which you can't be shy if you want to perform. But a lot of performers are shy. Carly Simon used to get physically unwell when she had to go on stage and perform. And she went on tour with the Rolling Stones, so that wasn't easy. <laughs> but it was essential in that period, in that era, in the 60s, it was essential to go and do whether you wanted it or not. So looking at that documentary, That Man Who Saved the World with Freddie, it's quite interesting. People have commented on a lot of it and it's been featured a lot. And Freddie himself became a star in Paris in the 90s because he was Bowie's designer and really his claim to fame. But he did have some interesting and different ideas and they did come across in what we were doing and gave David a lot of momentum that he might not have otherwise got. So let's step back to the sombrero for a minute because it's a really interesting place. So here's a picture of the sombrero as a coffee bar. You can see that is the coffee bar of the 50s that is already although it was very, very, very low-key, because in the 1950s you couldn't actually come out. Very few people came out in the 1950s, and the ones that did were not well-received. But you could go to clubs, just like you could in Berlin in the 30s, you could go to clubs where your sexuality was not a problem, where your gender wasn't a problem. And you could do the same in most of the world's capitals. But only if you knew, and only if the people that were there knew you, would you be allowed and accepted. And of course, there were often raids on those places, and they were often shut down for different uh, reasons. But the sombrero managed to survive. And it's interesting to see that it was already a well-known destination in the 50s and continued to be a well-known destination into the 70s. And now to make another curious connection, we had, we at possibly Gem, but certainly Mainman, we had working for us quite a few years a chap called Barry Bethel. And Barry Bethel was an actor 
and as an actor he'd formed part of a troupe called the Theatre Workshop and this was a troupe run by Joan Littlewood and Joan Littlewood was a very well-known theatre director and I met Joan through Brian Duffy and Lionel Bart, but Brian first. How did that come about? Well, I was working with Brian Duffy in this group of photographers and Brian had made or been involved in the making of a musical film called Oh, What a Lovely War. And Joan Littlewood was largely responsible for getting that film produced and directed and also was responsible for staging the Lionel Bart musical called Things Ain't What They Used To Be. And this was all in the 60s, before I met and began working with David, before I formed Main Man. But once I did start working in the music industry on a more full-time basis, which was really Gem Main Man, I could reach out and did reach out to people like Joan who still had this little theatre in Stratford East where she'd put on things like what they used to be before it moved to the West End, where she'd put on all kinds of things that eventually ended up in the Royal Court Theatre. This was a little Stratford East theatre. And so I was able to say to Joan, uh, can we borrow your theatre to do Bowie rehearsals? and I was then able to get a fully equipped theatre and do rehearsals in it. And they were rehearsals that nobody else attended, so we could actually create a Bowie character in a space that we could control, that had all the necessary ingredients for doing theatrical work that would later turn into Ziggy. And we did that for almost a year. And interspersed with that were some breaks so that we could do a rerun of one of Lionel's shows, which was designed to raise money to keep this little theatre alive because it was in the way of some major development. I don't know if it still exists, actually, but it probably did get knocked down. But it was an Edwardian theatre that we wanted to save. And, of course, we had selfish reasons for saving it, although part of it was... It would give Lionel a platform, which it did. Part of it was that we could still use it for Bowie rehearsals, which we did, and so on. But ultimately, the opportunity to interact with people from that theatrical space led to the position of saying, OK, we're going on tour, we're doing shows, we're getting more and more audiences, we need... And essentially, this is, again, a, a theatrical idea... In the early origins of theatre, you always had a prologue. The prologue would come out and tell you a little bit of the story and what was going to happen, what you might expect to see. And the prologue sort of comes from that idea of a town speaker, somebody who went around and shouted out the news and told people what was happening and described something that was coming and announced the next event goes back to Roman era times when criers were the way people were informed. So the idea of having somebody who would act as essentially the mouthpiece for the performance that was about to happen, again, it was 
Nobody else did this in rock and roll. You see, there was nobody going on stage in other shows saying, wait, wait, the Beatles are coming, or look, we've got Mick Jagger on stage, or any of that. That was all completely theatre-related and not rock and roll-related. And it needed somebody with a certain amount of, um, I suppose, you needed somebody with a big voice, a big personality, and who wasn't scared of being ridiculed or booed or shouted or told to get off the stage or any of that, which happened a lot. <laughs> and that person was Barry Bethel, who, again, I met via Joan, and he'd worked on various things with her. And then for the first two or three years of doing tours in the UK, he became this person who would introduce... Bowie and introduce the show and take, we didn't do interval breaks, but he was very much someone who could talk to promoters and be essentially a way of providing a barrier between David and the audience so that the first thing the audience heard and saw was the introductory music and then they got Barry. And so there was a certain amount of creating a aura of something marvellous is going to happen, something great is going to happen, the curtain's going to go up on a wonderful thing. And then sure enough, it did. Now, of course, not everybody thought it was wonderful all the time. Not everybody said, well, we're so glad we've got this um, loud, obnoxious person on stage announcing Bowie. But on the other hand, when we started the trick of saying Bowie's left the theatre Barry was a perfect person to come out again on stage and say Bowie's left the theatre and everyone would then rush to try and find out which exit did he leave by and of course by then it was too late or sometimes he hadn't left the theatre at all he was still there we were just getting people to get out of the way so he could leave the theatre so there was a lot of different uh, possibilities in having someone like that kind of largely free-form speaker, someone who was pretty much the job was to promote, distract, attract, and encourage behaviour that would lead to more and more interest, more and more activity, literally ratchet up the excitement at a concert. And this is what theatrical performances often did. They did it with different ways. You suddenly have a massively dramatic scene on stage and then the stage goes dark and then you wait and you don't know what's going to happen next and the ghost comes when the ghost comes it's always astonishing like when hamlet's ghost appears when it's like the ghost everyone in the theater is shocked because they know they're going to see the ghost but they don't know when and when they do they're shocked so that's what we did and those were some of the things that made it possible for david to become that performer because he had all this surrounding activity of lights, musicians, people like Barry, all giving him the ability to feel that whatever he did, the audience were going to love him. They were going to applaud him. And here is one of those Barry Bethel introductions that Tony mentioned, probably the most famous. Barry didn't know it at the time, but this was the last occasion he'd be introducing David live on stage. This from the now legendary Hammersmith Odeon concert on July the 3rd, 1973. Good evening, Hammersmith. 
Come on, I heard you can do better than that. Good evening, Hammersmith! <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, during the course of this evening's performance, there will be a 10-minute interval. Hang about a minute. Where the official programmes, T-shirts and posters, ladies and gentlemen, will be on sale outside in the foyer. Now, normally at this stage of the game, I walk off stage. But I'm not. Not tonight. Because I'm going to tell you a little bit about what's happened over the last eight weeks. I'm going to tell you that the David Bowie show has covered tonight 125,000 people. And ladies and gentlemen, somewhere in the audience tonight, a little girl by the name of Gina Riley, who comes from Hull, who was at our Bridlington show, is the young lady who was the 100,000th person to see David Bowie. Wherever you are, Gina, nice of you to come. Not only that, ladies and gentlemen, we covered tonight, by tonight, 7,000 miles on this tour in the United Kingdom alone. And it is, undoubtedly, the biggest tour ever accomplished by any one artist. I'm not going to stand out here much longer because it all gets very nostalgic for me. I'm a star anyway. Ladies and gentlemen, there are two minutes to showtime. Two minutes. During the course of rehearsals, Mike Garson, who is the pianist with the Spiders, played an arrangement of his own of four of David Bowie's numbers. Those numbers were Space Oddity, Ziggy, John I'm Only Dancing, and Life on Mars, which incidentally is number four today. <laughs> David Bowie, ladies and gentlemen, was so knocked out with Mike's arrangements of these numbers, he thought you might like to hear them. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome from New York, Mike Garson. That's Barry Bethel and his stage introduction for the Ziggy Stardust concert at London's Hammersmith Odeon on July the 3rd, 1973. There are some great pieces of memorabilia from this period in rock history that are now part of an ever-growing archive of main man documents, including articles, telexes, letters and production notes, a lot of them never seen before that we are adding to the Mainman Label website each week. It's a great record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Mainman series. Next time, DeFreeze explains more about the important relationship between David Bowie and Freddie Beretti. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening.